And then the next semester I enrolled in printmaking. That's kind of it. I decided this is what I'm doing. Print friends, and welcome to the 82nd episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube, and you can find all this and more at pinecopperlime.com. We also have a Patreon where generous and lovely print fans sign up at tiers that start at just a dollar a month, and as of this week, every tier will have access to a new feature in our PCL community. Shop Talk with our editor, Timothy Pauschak. These are brief, short, all-business, quick-and-dirty tips and tricks from our guests. What kind of paper do you use and why? What's the most important thing to know when starting up a print shop? How do you get your screens washed out so well? What's your best dancing tip? This is technical printmaking nerd content at its finest. Check it out now through the link in the show notes. And if you haven't heard, but I'm pretty sure you have by now, Pine Copper Lime does have merchandise to show your printmaking support. This week, though, we're trying something a little bit different. We have a new t-shirt design offered in collaboration with our guest this week, Mike Penningkamp. It's a fun one. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. Products like their line of professional screen printing tools. Speedball believes professional-grade quality doesn't have to ruin your budget. Their aluminum squeegees, scoop coaters, and high mesh count screens are all perfectly suited to outfit your workshop without changing your books from black to red. So if you want to upgrade your space from hobbyist to pro, head on over to Speedwell's website to see where you can pick up your new favorite setup. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Mike Penningkamp. We'll talk about being led to the print studio by the sweet sound of the dead Kennedys, the labor of printmaking, and how the screen print studio he works for has had to switch gears during COVID, the strange American landscape that makes up his art practice, and the wonderful world of print art collecting. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to go through those flat files with Mike Vanekamp. Hi, Mike. How's it going? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for joining me from uh, snowy Chicago all the way to hot and humid Bangkok. Actually, not sorry. I don't know if this is a weird flex, but I have to turn off my air conditioning. Sorry, there we go. I forgot to do that before we start recording. Um, I, have, I have two pairs of socks on right now. And you're telling me. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're across space and time and, and definitely climate for sure. But I'm, I'm really glad that we could get a chance to connect. Yeah, so am I. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. Excellent. So before we dive in and we talk about your practice and collecting and all kinds of that sort of thing. Can you just give a little introduction to all the folks listening out there tonight and let people know who you are and where you are and what it is that you do? 
Absolutely. Um, hi, everybody. My name is Mike Pennekamp. I'm a I'm a printmaker living in Chicago, Illinois. Excellent. So I've just sort of known your work, I guess, kind of by reputation. I know we have a lot of friends in common, uh, just from the SGCI, Print Austin, Print World kind of circuit. And yeah, and I've admired your work. I've seen mostly relief work from you, and we can definitely talk more about your practice from there. But can you let people know how you came to printmaking? Absolutely. Um, I came to printmaking, and I think I would like to say that most people come to it this way, but it was by accident, almost completely. So I, it turns out I actually carved a block in high school, um, like a small little, you know, lino block, but I completely forgot about that. I've only recently unearthed that um, going through some old stuff, but I've always been a, a, a maker of some, some, some sort. I've always been told I was an artist. And I think that has a lot to do with really supportive family and maybe my uh, stubbornness to like do anything else or pursue anything else. I don't know. I, I was somebody that was always drawing in, in little sketchbooks or notepads, you know, little legal notes. It was just always something that I, that I did. And so, you know, going through high school, um, art was what had my main, that's what I focused on. And when I got, when I graduated high school, the, the easy step was, or the step that was assumed was, you know, you go to college. Mm -hmm. And so that's it. And I, I didn't think about it. I went to the closest school to my hometown and that was Southern Illinois university in Edwardsville. Yeah. I just kind of dived into the required classes and then the art classes or electives or whatever I could take. And I found myself always in that art building you know, I didn't really leave. I didn't do much else. I was kind of, I buried myself in that, in that building, uh, in those rooms. And I think my social life probably suffered a little bit because <laughs> of it, but it, it's pretty isolating or it can be. Yeah. No, I think, I think I know what you mean because I think the thing, one of the things that people don't understand about art making and really don't understand, I think about, you know, a process like relief printmaking or drawing or really anything is that artists spend a lot of time alone because they it's just there's just the sheer number of hours it takes to paint an oil painting or carve a block is really quite significant. And so I think, you know, the the media shows these artists that are, I don't know, like, like Mr. Brainwash, like out there throwing his arm around Kanye, you know, with a nose full of Coke, like screaming with a fedora on or something. And you're like, sure. you're like that's not really what we do. Um, it's just kind of, it's so I, I think I definitely know what you mean about that kind of isolation that can come with the creative process that people don't really see or they don't really understand as part of making and a big part of making, for sure. I mean, I don't want to come across as though I'm, you know, more dedicated than anyone else, or you know, it, I want to cast all all that aside, and I don't want to want to imply anything like that. But the fact of the matter was, I was in that building a a lot, and I was, you know, after hours, kind of by myself until two or three in the morning, working on some dumbass like charcoal <laughs> still life. You know, like it didn't really matter. I just I knew that 
that art and like image making specifically was something that I was, I wanted to pursue and everything influencing me was pushing me in this direction. Like just go to, mm -hmm. go to school and, and pursue that. But there was one day that I was walking. I think it was probably like one in the morning and I heard, I think it was a song from the dead Kennedys. I think it was, probably holiday in Cambodia mm -hmm. or something, but it was, you know, echoing through the hall and I had no idea where it was coming from, but I was kind of curious because I had, I, I don't run into people in the art building, you know, and it turns out it was this weird little corner, this, this little area away from the painting and drawing where I was spending all of my time. And it was the printmaking and photo department. And yeah, I just kind of poked my head into this classroom that was booming this music that I was familiar with and partial to. And there was just one guy that was, you know, working on like a lithostone or something. I don't remember his name, but it was just immediately, you know, I'm seeing these, these big presses and this equipment and, you know, these, these images on the wall that, mm. you know, were prints, but I didn't know what that was at the time. I just knew that this was an atmosphere that I, this is a place I wanted to be. And I don't know, that's, I kind of realized what printmaking was. Or it was explained to me with this guy, I kind of talked to him. And then the next semester, I enrolled in printmaking. Hmm. That's kind of it. I decided this is what I'm doing. I don't know. I wish there was something more poetic in that story. No, I, I love it as an image that you kind of had this siren song of the dead Kennedys wafting through an empty art building. And it's, it was beautiful to hear you talk about that moment of just walking in and seeing the art and seeing the presses and just thinking, oh, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be. Yeah, it was just kind of, it was just there, you know, and then everything else that because I, I, I don't know what, I, it took me a while to get through to earn a, a, a BFA. You know, I, I don't remember how long actually, but yeah, like it was, as soon as I found out what that was, that was what I wanted to do. And it was kind of this urge to just do that. And, you know, all my other classes kind of got cast aside. They were all secondary to this process, you know, and that's when my grade started slipping a little bit mm. because it was just focusing so much on, on this thing <laughs> that I did, you know, and yeah, I just kind of never looked back. I think what was probably the most interesting was it was like the process of printmaking is work. It is a trade. And I grew up in a small town uh, called Granite City, Illinois. Granite City is about 15 minutes across the Mississippi from St. Louis, Missouri. And it's a steel mill town. You know, it's, it's, it's a really blue collar working class town. And so there was this, the notion of, you know, getting up, going to work, putting in work. Yeah, you know, I mean, the, just working hard was something that I, I kind of like, like a husky, like that, like a, a husky. <laughs> If they're not doing something, if they're not doing a, a chore or like, you know, exuding this energy, then they will just kind of go nuts. Uh -huh. So I've always looked at art making as kind of a blue collar endeavor or pursuit. And I, yeah, it's the work, the, the manual labor that's in printmaking specifically is just such a great release of that tension and energy. It's such a, a wonderful observation and connection. And it's something that as someone who studied the history of printmaking, I, I love it when people kind of point that out because it's only really, really recently in our Western history that we started to think of artists as 
something special, like the genius, the, you know, it was, you didn't want your kid to be an artist in the 1500s in Germany because he's going to work with his hands, you know, and I say he, because obviously women didn't work, but it'd be like, ah, he's going to work with his hands. What what is he like a cabinet maker? What what is he a coal miner? (laughs) You know? And there was no distinction. There was no, there was no, this is the special endeavor and this is manual labor. It was like, no, it's all manual labor. Yeah. I I think it's similar to like the way we see actors and and actresses and the kind of like famous entertainers. If you go back far enough, these people were like, they they weren't respectable members of society. Mm -hmm. Like at least largely, you know, kind of viewed. These are traveling entertainers that would show up, put on a play and, Maybe some people were into it. Maybe they weren't, but they'd just go to town. They didn't live. They didn't live big, fabulous lives. And the idea of a big, fabulous, you know, big home and, and all those things that never really interested me. Something occurred to me in your story when you were talking about you know this the siren song of the dead Kennedys bringing you into printmaking, and you you walked in and you looked around and you saw the art, and it you responded to it positively and were drawn to it. And I'm wondering if, because it sounds like you knew the dead Kennedys before and then were introduced to printmaking, but there is that connection, I feel like, between punk and print. You know, the punk aesthetic that has these high, high contrast images that just are down to their black and white so they can be silk screens and woodcuts and that kind of thing and that political activism and that sort of roughness and the quick and dirty, nothing is precious I, you know, I, I see that connection aesthetically, but also sort of uh, ideologically. I wonder if that had anything to do with it. Do you think that you sort of saw something in that that kind of felt familiar through your familiarity with that kind of music? I think so. I, I, I don't know if I was ever really an incredibly rebellious teenager. Maybe I was, but I, I was definitely always drawn to the to punk rock and um, you know skateboarding and that th- these those kind of two cultures that that went hand in hand and also relied so heavily on graphics, right. you know, and uh, simultaneously like kind of a rejection of like the sacrosanct, you know, mm-hmm. the idea of like you know in punk rock and skateboarding there's also that kind of idea of a poser and somebody that doesn't do something the right way, so right. <laughs> that. <laughs> The sacrosanct and then also like kind of having your own hierarchy or, or whatever is ridiculous, but um, it's still there, you know? And yeah, I guess that's kind of that, that need to express yourself and buck some system or some norm. Mm. I guess there is a through line there. I don't know. I don't know if I'm answering that question. No, too, I mean, it, well. it's, you, could, you could also just say, no, Miranda, there is no connection <laughs> for me. <laughs> <laughs> if, if it's if it's not there, but I just was sort of thinking about it because it's uh, one of the great things that that printmaking does is it allows some of the preciousness around art to fall away. It it, it allows artists to make multiples so they can they can wheat paste it on Tuesday and if it's torn down by Friday, the piece still did its job, and and uh, you can give your work away. And you can trade your work and you can sort of step out of of that needing that the value to be absolutely monetary because you're not looking at an oil painting that you spent 
six months of your life making and you need to you need to keep it precious in order for you to live to sell it yeah and just in that kind of punk rock mindset I don't know calling it punk rock makes me feel about 3,000 years old but it's (laughs) yeah it's hard to escape that um I don't know maybe I should say like you know bay or some other like contemporary feel young printmaking is bay yeah exactly exactly so it's so it's so punk rock like (laughs) and I think too there's something in there about the rejection of mainstream you know this if people think that artists are painters I need to be something other than a painter and and people who are looking for beyond what society is just saying this is how you do things this is the definition of things you, you know this is what a boy is this is what a girl is this is what a bestseller on the New York Times list looks like as a book these are the things you are this is what you read here's two and a half men it's the most popular show in America go watch it like anything within that realm is people who just kind of are naturally maybe curious or even just naturally contrary who want to say I don't think I have to do any of those things <laughs> you know yeah I mean it's I guess the the you know punk aesthetic of of having a voice and making sure your voice is heard or in, mm. in, you know inject yourself into a system and then the the idea of skateboarding and that you skate everywhere right. you know you don't have to go to a skate park you can go on the street and go to a little curb, you can go to the gas station outside of a Seven Eleven, but you have to do this and you're putting your stamp on, you know, the world, I guess. I think the same is for printmaking and like you have a point of view and you have a voice and the idea of a multiple and, and being able to create, you know, hundreds, if you wanted to, like of one image that represents you and represents your feelings and your passion and you can put it out there into the world and you can just kind of, you know, flood, flood the market, I, I guess. You know, and insist that people recognize you. I don't know. It's, it's just such an empowering idea. Yeah, you know, because it, that's what humans are, right? Humans, human nature to to need to be heard and validated in some way. You know. Absolutely, I think that's that's really beautiful and important, and what it's all about in a lot of ways, for sure. So, to talk about your practice specifically. I know your work through relief, through woodcut. Why woodcut of all media? How did you sort of come to that and decide to dedicate your time and your practice and all of that to that specific branch of our printmaking family? I mean, I'm familiar with several, you know, print processes. And I don't think woodcut was the first one I learned, oddly enough. I think etching was probably the first thing I was taught. But for some reason, there's there's a physicality involved in woodcut specifically as the relief uh, that I just can't seem to find anywhere else. You know, etching's etching's really beautiful. Lithography is magic. Yes. Essentially, <laughs> but woodcut is this. I don't know. It's a little bit brutal. It's a little more aggressive. But at the same time, it. What I try to do is challenge myself to be more delicate with. I don't know with that process. That's a terrible answer. Um, <laughs> I like the challenge in it. You know, I think that if you, if you etch a plate the right way, and if you process a plate the right way, it will look the way you want it. If you, you know, draw on a lithostone with the right types of crayons and you etch the stone the correct way 
and print it, ink it up appropriately, you will get a great, you can replicate your mark. But woodcut doesn't really do that. You have to rely on the tool to make the mark. And I don't know, there's just a challenge in it that I, I really love. And to be honest, once I started cutting, once I started making woodcuts, every time I would branch away and, or branch out and uh, pursue another process, the whole time I'm thinking, God, I wish I was making this on a piece of wood. <laughs> and I don't know exactly why, but it's, it's what I, you know, what I, what I'm most drawn to even linoleum, like linoleum's great. People really like it. But every time I make a lino cut, I'm just furious with myself that I didn't do it. On yeah. It sounds like that, that immediacy of the mark making is really something that you really like in your process. Yeah. yeah. And that like seeing, you know, seeing your hand create the image directly maybe is sort of tied to some of that artistic satisfaction that we're, we all look for. Yeah, I, I think so. It's, I mean, there's also something really liberating about woodcut. I know that screen printing is quick, mm-hmm. you know, in a lot of ways. I don't want to I don't want to dump on screen printing or anything or any process, but there's something quick and immediate to the replication process in screen printing, but woodcut printing, you can do anywhere. You know, I have a little like eight and a half by 11 inch piece of plexiglass. I have a little four inch brayer from speedball and I have a wooden spoon. And for the most part, that's what I use to make these, to make my prints. And there's this kind of troubleshooting in order to, you know, get the right kind of pressure, the right amount of ink or whatever. But like when you get that dialed in, I can just sit at a desk and make woodcuts. I don't have to have a big, you know, litho press or um, an exposure unit or, you know, these kind of things that usually or an acid bath or whatever you need to Mm -hmm. to kind of uh, pursue those other processes. Yeah. No, that's Uh so true. That yeah, that with relatively few specialized items you can make a lot of woodcuts yeah i think it is really accessible for a lot of people to get into a woodcut to kind of it's it's confusing to explain but i think when people see it and when people try to do it themselves i mean even with just stamps right mm-hmm. like the idea of a stamp people understand that and if i have on many occasions described what i do is making big stamps <laughs> don't that have no you know, uh, no way of entering. Oh, that's so funny. I, I feel like there's something like sacrilegious or something like that. Oh, absolutely. Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. I, I understand I mean, though, but that's just me being a snob. That's just me being like, um, actually it's different. This isn't Michael's. Like, but it, it is, it's all the same. It's, it's you, oh, yeah, ink holds on the high ground of the matrix, mm-hmm. and then that turns into an image when you put it against something. It's the same damn thing, but it's like, like I'm like, oh God, not stamps, not teddy bears. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and there are plenty of, of printmakers that make amazing work that use like stamp rubber, you know, to carve. Yeah. And so like almost precisely that's what they're doing is making a, a big stamp in the most literal sense. I don't know. I, I've caught plenty of flack from printmakers about using the word stamp mm-hmm. and and I'm okay with that uh, yeah. but I've also I feel like I've exposed a lot of people to an art form that they wouldn't really 
understand otherwise by using that word. So I'm fine with it. Absolutely. And that's what it's about. Well, and you know, the French word for printmaking is le stamp. So the French have already admitted it. Like we're the ones who are holding out. It is. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of your imagery, you see things from space. You see UFOs. Uh, you see cowboys. You see JFK. You see Nero. But it all does seem to fit together. Uh, there does seem to be kind of a through line there. And part of it is just your distinctive aesthetic of the way you carve or the way you make faces and lines. But what's the through line for you? How do you know when an image is comes to you and when it is sort of ready to be turned into a print? Well, first and foremost, what you said about everything going together is the greatest compliment oh. and it's a huge way I'm, I'm I don't know a lot of the times like I will lay out work and look at it and you're like what the fuck am I doing <laughs> you know but I think that if there was a through line it would kind of be this reflection of you know a strange American landscape yeah I'm really interested in politics I'm also interested in conspiracy theories from a really young age I think the x-files probably influenced yes. me a great deal Actually, my partner and I have been rewatching the X-Files from episode one on, and there are some clunkers in there. I just, yeah. just going <laughs> to be real about that. You know, but I don't know. I, when I was growing up, I was always drawing. Mm-hmm. And I also spent a lot of time in the library. And that library had a weird, like, paranormal section, which yes, is... Yes, the occult section. Yeah, I, I know exactly where that is in my mind's eye. You know, I can, if you if we were on the phone and you were out in front of that library, I would tell you exactly where to go, you know, to, to, to get access to these books. And I don't know, like the Mysterious Universe Collection, was that the one? Yes, that I remember that. I loved that. Yeah, these all were like hugely influential and in just, I, I think, showing kind of a dumb kid that there was crazy stuff out there. I don't know, as like this weird escapist sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, you know, kind of growing older, becoming a little more realistic. And I kind of moved from thinking about, you know, the ins and outs of like alien life to what, why, why we're so interested in it. Mm. I, th- I think I'm, I'm more fascinated by what an object like a UFO really represents rather than the UFO itself. Can you say more about that? Absolutely. Yeah. I, a UFO, I mean, you break down the the name to an unidentified flying object, right? So you see something in the sky, you don't know what it is, and it becomes a UFO. Now you can do a couple different things with that. You can say, I don't know what that is. I need to figure that out. Or another another way you can approach it is by projecting everything that you've learned about a UFO or you've been told about a UFO onto that. And then that opens up this incredible, like imagined potentially, or like this this weird world about like, that is a spaceship. There are things flying that spaceship that aren't from this world. Mm. That implies that there's life outside of this world. And that not only that, but they are sophisticated enough to have created a spaceship. You know, they can fly through fucking space mm-hmm. and get to, you know, get to our planet. And then why are they here? Oh, well, they're here for this reason or that reason. It's like it's a way to identify something that's unexplained. And in that identification, there is an even more complex world that's just implied there and i don't know like the idea of kind of simplifying a potential for discovery 
into something that probably just, you know, kind of imagined and made out of whole cloth. The inherent human need to do that is really fascinating to me. Mm. It is a, a deeply ingrained human need to, to identify but not understand, if that makes sense. I think that the, the trope, I guess, is, you know, a ancient person, not Neanderthal, but, you know, whomever, right? A creature that is humanoid that it, we came from is in some area surrounded by danger, right? And, you know, there, there are two people walking side by side, maybe hunting for food or looking to forage berries or something. And a, a, a shrub like shakes and they start to hear, hear a noise. Mm-hmm. That noise sounds sinister or something. And there, there are two things that you can do. You can either say, that's a, that is a danger and I am going to leave and you run away. Or you say, I don't know what that is. I've got to find out. Mm. And on the off chance or probably more likely chance that that is a predator, then that need to explore and discover that genetic line is gone. And so the person that jumps to a conclusion and runs away frightened or just to protect themselves, they pass on their, I mean, their, their genetic materials, what gets passed on. Well, I think, I think for me, it, it, it in a way kind of circles back to what we were talking about earlier about people who want to explore beyond the mainstream and how that is a smaller percentage of people than those who are very comfortable functioning within the mainstream. I think that is true. Yeah, because it's like, well, most of them who wanted to explore beyond just the information they're given, most of them got eaten. But a few of us, you know, a few of us, it, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a wolf. It was a wolf cub that we then domesticated and hunted with. And, you know, uh, and then we got stronger or something, you know, whatever, whatever story you want to tell. So but I think that's that's in there and can definitely be tied back to this idea of like the, the UFO, this this unidentified object that can has this kind of unlimited potential it's schrodinger's cat right it's it's uh exactly. yeah it's it's it ha- it holds everything and because of what we don't know about it yeah and and i really i really love what you were saying about your work being the strange american landscape because i just i think that that's such a perfect way to put that through line and that's why it all has that feeling of of being together is because it's like oh yeah like that's it the kind of strangeness and the the shiny veneer of the unknown and the kind of grotesque tapestry that is American culture it's all in there for sure and I think that the way you carve that like really really detailed lines for instance on like Ronald Reagan's face it, it, it captures, I think, that kind of strangeness and like the grotesqueness of that. It's supposed to be all perfect and shiny and, oh, he was a cowboy. But when you look closer, it's like, ooh, that's, wow, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, if anybody wants to just get upset, I suggest you research Ronald Reagan. Yeah. I mean, specifically. But, you know, that's, that doesn't have to do with art making. That's just politics and history. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's. I think you hit it pretty dead on. It's in the last four years. I mean, the term "post-truth" mm. has been around for a little while. You know, um, I think it was in 1996, some paper that was written, maybe it's 93, but I could be way off. But the, I, I think the idea of post-truth 
is fascinating um, and terrifying at the same time. And yeah, I feel like the idea of an authority or, or the notion of expertise has devolved in this weird way to where, you know, you can, you can live your life and just completely reject facts. You can pick and choose what you want to believe because we've reached a point where we don't have to worry about that monster in the bushes anymore. Mm. You know, that predator is not there. So why do we still have this, I don't know, this residual need to assume and react rather than discover? Again, I think, I think I just may have talked myself into one of those corners. No, no, no worries. That can, that definitely can happen when you're talking across space and time and to a microphone about aliens and Ronald Reagan. <laughs> yeah, Ronald Reagan saw a UFO. Wait, that sounds familiar, actually, but I don't know that I know, yeah, the details. Yeah, I think it was in 1967, I think. Mm, that was a good year for UFOs. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was when he was a, a governor, I believe, of, of California, but he wasn't he wasn't president yet. Or maybe it was 74. I don't know. I, I used to know more than I know now about president of the United States and their relationships with UFOs. So just make sure we get to this with, with the time we have left. I'd love to switch gears a little bit and talk about Flat File Friday. Absolutely. Because I think that that's a really interesting side of what you do. Could you tell the, the good people of America and beyond, uh, what is Flat File Friday? Sure. So first, I mean, as far as like Flat, flat File Friday goes, I do want to say that I didn't come up with the hashtag. Mm. It's it's a great alliteration, but that was just something that I saw. It's been around for a while. But I've been working with Speedball for a little while now as one of their demo artists. And when COVID hit the states pretty hard, people started spending a lot of time inside. And I realized that I mean I, I, I'm also spending time inside and I'm surrounded by walls and I just was this, I assumed that people might become a little more aware of what's on their walls. There are a lot of times that people live and you exist in a home or an apartment, you know, and you're kind of shown what is supposed to be up on a living room wall or in your dining room. You know, you walk into a Target or something and there's like right. a framed photograph of the Eiffel Tower, you know, and that's fine, but I'm not interested in the Eiffel Tower. You know, I, I'm interested in these other things. When people are staying inside, you know, now there is this kind of focus also on like self-care, right? Yeah. Self-care companies have kind of boomed a little bit like, you know, uh, boutique candle makers or, you know, the idea of like bath bombs, whatever the hell a bath bomb, I still don't know. <laughs> um, it sounds amazing, but I've never used one. I don't, know what, I don't know what it does. You know, but like I always saw art or like looking at art as another form of self-care as a way to bring mm. legitimate joy to somebody. And yeah, it, it, to bring this back to the idea of what people are told is art, what people are that, that authority of, you know, what we should hang on our walls or what we should, I don't know what you should purchase mm -hmm. um, is usually pretty, pretty terrible yeah, uh, or whatever, you know, um, and cheap. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I, I wanted people to think more about, collecting art. I wanted to demystify it a little bit. Yes. I, I've spent many years as a printmaker. And in that time, I've acquired a pretty, what I would consider a really neat collection of, of prints from really talented people. And I felt like nobody was trying to, it, it didn't seem like anyone was showing their collection. Yeah. The idea of 
you know, what art is, is one sort of authority. But then the idea of like what collecting art means or, you know, who's supposed to or who can, you know, whole nother. And it's really intimidating. You know, the idea of like, I mean, at the risk of sounding pretty crass, there's the idea of an art collector being kind of like a tweed suited fart sniffer, sort of like (laughs) really, you know, asshole, right? Um, That, you know, they they buy this idea that you buy something because it's more of an investment than a legitimate thing that brings you joy. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, and so, so then there's this, like, if you're spending money, like if you go to Target or Ikea and you buy that picture of the Eiffel Tower that they've got, then you know that you've bought something that goes on the wall and that's, that's a, an art for the wall. It's a wall art and you get to have it and there it is. You've spent your money on this thing and it's serving its purpose as long as it fucking hangs there. <laughs> um, you, you know, like buying a screen print from somebody, it might be a little bit, you know, a little blue. It might have some weird humor in it. There might be some nudity. You know, there might be a cuss word on it, <laughs> you know, or it could be something that's really aggressive and you don't know if it, like, if you buy that, Ooh, there, what do you do with it? Like, I don't know if I should really hang this up. I don't know if this is, this goes on my wall with the idea of flat file Friday and showing works that I have that I really truly love. Um, I wanted to, to kind of maybe show not force, but encourage people to kind of branch out their idea of what what artwork is supposed to be and how they sh- could attain it and enjoy it as a as like a, a normal part of their life i think it's 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 definitely spot on and there's so much in there it's like that's such a, a rich vein to mine i feel like we could we could have done the whole episode on it given everything you just said because this idea that art is not for me is this idea that I run into as someone who for the last almost 10 years have worked in the arts in some way as the the conduit between the public and the art, run into it over and over and over again. You know, this, uh, oh, oh, art. Oh, yes, I did art in high school, but I'm not a millionaire. So, you know. Period. Like full stop. <laughs> like it can't as as if it's self-explanatory. And if if we could normalize art collecting in this way that this is something that you can do with your money that directly pays to patronize artists, makers, craftspeople, however you want to put it, that will then continually give you joy or something to think about or remind you of something that you like or reinforce your values and it's not just this wall needs a picture because it's blank it's it's this is this is something that somebody made put blood sweat and tears into and it gets to hang in my home now as an artifact of someone's extreme creative endeavor is beautiful and people don't realize that it can be for them like if you can buy a pair of Birkenstocks you can buy a print like it's just it's just a fact and you know yeah not all of us are going to be are going to be buying Rauschenbergs of course but a lot of us could be buying Pennekamps you know (laughs) I I the world would be such a beautiful place if everyone was buying Pentacamp. A Pentacamp in every home, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I mean, yeah. If you know, you you 
go to a restaurant. I mean, all, all these examples kind of suck now that we're in COVID times, you know, but like the idea of going out and getting a meal, right. For two people, I guess 50 bucks, if you really wanted to kind of go all out 25, you know, $25 to $50, or you go, you know, to the mall or whatever website, I guess you go to for like fast fashion and you buy something for, right. you know, $30, $50, right. Like, you can easily just not make those purchases mm-hmm. and purchase a, a piece of art that may not contribute to the the environmental effects of fast fashion or like um, all of the natural resources that are expended making, you know, whatever food at this restaurant, mm-hmm. right? Like you kind of cut down on the emissions of like a, an industrial like meat manufacturer, whatever that is, you know, yeah. um, save some, some cows and you save some like, you know, some community in Bangladesh is just being torn apart by whatever terrible companies, you know, exploiting those workers and you buy a piece of art. I mean, forgive the bombastic rhetoric or, or you know, if this sounds too shiny and, and sunny, but could buying art save the planet? Yeah. Could buy somebody like putting money towards some someone being able to pay bills and, 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 and eat without, you know, and not push like giving your money to exploitative companies. Yeah. Could that save the planet? It could. Who's to say it can't? I don't, I'm not a scientist. (laughs) Well, and I think something you said in there was, is significant too, that I don't think the general public realizes is that when you buy art, you are not making a millionaire or a billionaire more money you were significantly improving the income of an artist for that month or that week or whatever it is. And, and if you buy through a gallery too, most galleries are small businesses. You know, like yeah. even if they're splitting the, that commission with a gallery, you know, you're looking at a gallery that's often a, a family business that employs two or three people. And, and I know that gallerists can get a bad rap. And of course, a lot of that is through the media and, you know, looking at these people in the upper echelons through the, you know, the, the great Instagram account cancel art galleries where they are really calling out some of the super toxic practices at the really high end galleries. But most galleries, galleries where you're going to be buying prints, particularly, that owner is probably paying their employees more than they're paying themselves because they're in this out of passion and mm-hmm. and that they are just trying to make it work but they want to provide a space for artists and they want to provide jobs in the arts and that truly is having some speaking as someone who's worked in art galleries for a long time most of them are pretty good kind-hearted folks <laughs> truly who are in it because they love art and they want to support artists and they want to connect people with art. So it's, it's your, and, and so when you do that anyway, you, you're, you're stepping out, you know, you're not getting Jeff Bezos another few pennies on his dollar. You are paying small businesses and you are paying makers when you collect and, and then you get something that you love. I love my art collection. I, I, it makes me happy Every time I look through it, it it fulfills me in a really wonderful way. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it is really, I don't know, I mean, art is transformative, mm. right? Like, it'll transform a space 
you know, but it can also transform a person that's looking at it. Like it can really have a, a, a huge effect on someone. And, you know, as like, I, not only do I want to encourage people to consider buying art because I'm an artist, mm-hmm. you know, like there's obviously that kind of rising tide lifts all ships sort of deal, right? Like it would be stupid of me or dishonest of me not to acknowledge that, you know? Yeah. I think people, there's a deficit of joy in the world right now. Yeah. And, you know, like $25, $25 for an artist, like for a, you know, a screen printed poster or something like that fills that artist with so much joy. And if it's something that brings you joy, then you can't afford not to spend $25 on mm-hmm. something that like just gives you a little bit of relief something yeah. you know some moment that you can have it's like it doesn't have to change your whole life but if you can just think in your head that's pretty fucking cool yeah you know then the art has done its job and you know i've been able to sell some stuff and i'm beyond grateful to everyone that and flattered beyond belief that anyone would think something that i've made is worthy of that um because it's such a it's, it's such an amazing i don't know the an idea that something that you've made can benefit someone or transform somebody's like day or outlook. Yeah, I I am not a, a maker in the visual sense, but every time I get an email that someone has signed up for the Patreon for this podcast, even if it's you know a dollar a month, it's just I am just like shocked and grateful you know like I think it's kind of a a, maybe a similar feeling of just of being like wow like you want to show that you like what I put all of this effort into like that's amazing like it's just it really it really has that feeling And, and I think too which I think is true for a lot of makers you know we make because we have to because it's just, it's like this, these things need to be in the world. I need to see them in the world. I need to be working, as you say. Like, I need to be fulfilled in this way. And then that some having someone come along and be like, yeah, I, I, I like what fulfills you. It feels very, almost kind of intimate and lovely. And, and especially if you don't even know them. It's just a, a kind stranger somewhere in the world. It's a beautiful experience. Yeah, it's so motivating. And it, it's just, I think it's probably worth noting that the Flat File Friday deal is through Speedball's Instagram account. Mm. I did not say that before. Um, so, whoops. But, you know, the, the idea of like, there's so many ways to support artists and creatives, you know, through social media and sharing, spreading that word, you know, and, and all that is fantastic. But that said, like, the kind of financial encouragement of, contributing even a dollar to Patreon or mm-hmm. purchasing, you know, whatever you can from an artist is not only saying, I acknowledge your work and I really like what you're doing, but it's also saying like, I want you to do more. Yes, I want you is. to keep going. And you know, that's, it, there's nothing better. Yeah. I think people should, I think people should give money to creators if not for the love of those creators and what they're creating. But you know, I mean, if, if you do it only to get a smug sense of satisfaction, <laughs> that's fine, too. That's I'll fine, too. I'll take it. I'll take it. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, so, yeah, maybe. And this is like, I, I feel like this is, you know, 
preaching to the choir to all the the wonderful PCL listeners, but maybe maybe you can go tell your Aunt Karen about this, guys. Like, is that, you know, maybe next time someone is feeling a little restless and looking for retail therapy, you know, rather than, I don't know, staring at another pair of yoga pants on Amazon for 45 minutes, like, go to Big Cartel, go to Instagram, go just think about spending that 60 bucks on a print instead and and you're gonna you're gonna get a lot more out of it than those discount lululemons guys and like you're gonna be a better world citizen as well if i may be so bold but i think it's true yeah does buying art make you a better person who's to say i don't know i mean i can't i can't say for sure but i can't not say that it will fulfill you in some way and I think that there's something in there, and I speak as this is someone who's been on the commercial side of the art world for a long time. There's something self-affirming about it, about looking at nearly infinite amount of artistic offerings of images that exist in the world and saying, this one is the one I love. It's mm-hmm. It can be transformative for that person and that they can look at it and it affirms something that they like about themselves or that they wish to be you know whether it's more revolutionary or more calm or more sophisticated or less sophisticated whatever feeling they get from that work of art they that continues to have those returns as they live with it in their home and that can be a really powerful thing too i think for people to say like this is me saying something about myself and my taste and you know it's not from ikea it is not the safe bet it's not the eiffel it's not a bicycle leaning up against the eiffel tower it is something that is unique to me and i yeah i i love that i i it's it's wonderful to see people going through that process and helping them when they're when they're looking for art to purchase too. Absolutely, I mean it's an investment in yourself in your in your own interest. Mm. I, I I do think that we live in a time where people's interests are curated, right? Like it's really easy to yeah. scroll through Instagram account or on Facebook or whatever, and you like something and you like it by pressing a button, and that is that is you signaling that you've enjoyed this thing, you know. And as valuable as that could be, it has, I think, I think people have been crippled or, or kept from really searching, really looking for something. There's a difference between finding a song on Spotify mm. and there's, and, and going to a record store and digging through like some stacks and finding the record. Yeah. You know, that there's, it's way more, it's just more fulfilling and it, it's, like an, and it's an accomplishment and you can feel good about it. You can be proud of something that you've done that, I, I can't help but think about legitimate interest, and I don't want to le- delegitimize anybody's interest. You know, like, I don't. I'm not trying to play that game necessarily, but like, I think people should really like stuff. Yeah. And I feel like people really like stuff anymore. You know. Yeah. There's something in there for me about this fact that I feel like people get this sense that because they have the internet, they have access to everything. You know that like. Everything that they love is on Spotify and Spotify will provide it for them. But it's like, oh, no, like go to a, if you go to a record store, there is guaranteed things in there that are not on Spotify that you might love and you need to get your fingers dusty to find them. 
And there's something, there's that connection there with art too, where it's just visually blasted, blasted, blasted through the internet. But to actually go and find that particular image that you connect with, that an artist has made, is a horse of a different color. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are going to be things that aren't on Spotify, right? The fantastic bands don't have a Spotify account. They, you can't find their their offerings, you know. Um, and there are artists that also don't really have that sort of platform or notoriety, right? Like, I don't know, Picasso. Yeah. Right? Like, we all know who Picasso is. Fine. But, like, I'm trying to think of an artist kind of like Picasso. I'm thinking of, like, Leon Golub, you know, or, like, any other there are just so many other artists that are that are out there and to find an artist that you really love that not to take anything away from Picasso or Van Gogh or, or whomever, mm-hmm. right? Whoever kind of falls under that, like that curse of the, the museum gift shop mug yes. or tote bag, <laughs> like Frida Kahlo is a fucking badass. There's yeah. no way I'm going to take anything away from her, but you know, like how many times do you see somebody with a, like a picture of someone with a unibrow on a mug Mm-hmm. you know, or a tote bag or something. And it just kind of becomes this, it, it, she's an artist among many that don't have the impact that they once did because they've been, I don't know, the one person that everybody goes to because that's what's been commercialized. Yeah. But when you find, you know, that artist that hasn't been, that's a little more unique. I'm trying to think of words that aren't so judgy. Yeah. Because I don't want to like, somebody <laughs> for having that, those interests or those like, inclinations or preferences i don't know just kind of somebody actively exposing themselves to a a wider world and trying to seek out like you know it, whether it's musicians in the record the dusty stacks in a record store or you know the artists in a gallery that are kind of off to the side you know or the artists on the internet where you just like kind of go into instagram and type in some hashtag mm. and you know find mm-hmm. that kind of the idea of sense and discovery and seeking something out and learning something for yourself. Oh no, we're going back to the, the prehistoric person and the, the yeah, yeah. This, we've, we've come I, home. <laughs> totally. And I think that's a great, a great way to, to wrap it up, which is to like the hunt, enjoy the pursuit of art and find something that you love. Before we sign off entirely, can you let people know where they can find you and see your work and, Maybe we can get a pen and camp in every home. <laughs> Absolutely, I am. Uh, I am on Instagram. Uh, my handle is Mike Face Pilla. That is all one word: M I K E F A C E K I L L A H. That's just a Ghostface Killer Wu Tang Clan mm-hmm. reference. Started that Instagram back before I thought that you know I'd be using it for anything <laughs> even remote professional. So. Ever, uh, but I, I don't want to change it now. Yeah. I feel kind of like it, it's kind of stupid and I don't know, I enjoy it. Anyway, there's that. Uh, I have a website, mikepenicamp.com. But I think like most people, I need to update it. I yep. need to get some better stuff. Then I need to make more things and refresh that website because it's pretty stagnant. Like, as much you know, trash talk I, I may have said about social media, I really do love Instagram as a platform and I've connected with a bunch of people over it. And if anybody wants to shoot me a message and just chat, we're all starved for human attention. If you want to say hi, I'll, I will say hi right back to you. Beautiful. It's fun. I made some friends over Instagram recently and I enjoy it. Oh, that's great. Well, I will definitely make sure to put a link to your show notes 
uh, so people can send you a DM and we can have some human contact in, in our, our world right now. So you can go say hi to Snowy Chicago from wherever you are. So beautiful. Well, it's been really fun, Mike. I loved this conversation and everywhere we went with it. And, you know, I want to have a whole nother talk just about the X-Files. Well, we absolutely can. If you if you would like, we'll just another day. Exactly. I, I just, I, I love it. And... Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week for our double release bilingual bi-monthly episode in collaboration with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano and our guest, Alexis Nutini. We'll talk about early cultural anthropology print inspirations, color theory, and long-distance collaboration in the time of social distancing. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Thank you.